0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about the concept of a leap of faith, often attributed to Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher of the 19th century. And joining me today is Amber Bowen, our Two Cities expert on Kierkegaard. How's it going, Amber?
1: Hey, John. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Amber, you're working on a PhD on Kierkegaard. Would you like to just briefly tell us a little bit about what that's all about and might set up a little bit of this conversation about this idea of a leap of faith, especially as it is often attributed to Kierkegaard?
1: Yeah. So I'm writing a dissertation on Kierkegaard and a new movement in contemporary philosophy called New Phenomenology. So it's a very fun project and it is a development from many years of interest in Kierkegaard. But my initial engagement with Kierkegaard came when I was in high school attending apologetic seminars. (laughs) Hmm. Um, I was that nerdy high school kid who enjoyed following Norman Geisler and Lee Strobel and all of the great evidentialists and classical apologists to their Mm -hmm. various conferences around and uh, was just really intrigued by the whole enterprise. Uh, But Kierkegaard was often mentioned in those contexts. And he was always the whipping boy. And it was usually this notion of a leap of faith that was connected to him and or that he was blamed for. Reading people like Francis Schaeffer talking about Kierkegaard plunging us beneath the line of despair and making faith this irrational thing. And so I was, I was very curious about that throughout high school and college.
0: So that's very interesting. So what you're saying is that Kierkegaard has sort of been seen as a little bit of a boogeyman by some Christian apologists for particularly undermining how they perceive we ought to think
1: about faith. Yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of it actually comes from some misconceptions. Most of it comes from some misconceptions, actually, about his authorship and how to read his authorship. And he's very, very difficult to read. He's not that person that you can pick up One of his books, and open it, and look and read a sentence, and extract a paragraph, and get an idea of what he's saying. Typically, people who offer short summaries of him and his thought just very much miss the mark on what he's doing, and tend to cause more harm than good. And so, one of the problems with reading Kierkegaard is just the fact that his authorship requires so much investment and time. It's it's not a quick drive by. Another problem also is a bit of a historical one when it comes to the evangelical audience. Some of his earliest texts were translated into English in the late 1930s. And if you think about the history of fundamentalism and the later evangelical movement, a lot of it began with the split in the 1920s from Princeton. Mm -hmm. And that's when other schools like Westminster and Dallas Theological Seminary were started. And so if you think that Kierkegaard's texts were actually translated by a guy at Princeton Less than two decades after all of that happened, it explains a bit why there was kind of an early impression of him as the theologian or the philosopher of the liberals. And he wasn't someone, yeah, he wasn't someone that we thought about incorporating in our conversations or our our ideas. And it, it also meant that the earliest Kierkegaard scholars in the English speaking world, at least, did come from more of a liberal background. And so that also influenced the way he was received by evangelicals. So between stereotypes that were created, caricatures that were created by different people like Francis Schaeffer and passed on through a whole variety of different scholars within the evangelical apologetics movement, and then even just in general evangelical philosophy, coupled with the majority of the scholars who were studying Kierkegaard coming from outside of the evangelical camp, that kind of explains a lot of the reason why there's such an odd relationship between evangelicals and Kierkegaard, and one that I think is becoming different now as he's Mm. being more and more exonerated.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. One of the things that comes to my mind with all this uh, conversation about Kierkegaard and Leap of Faith uh, is an episode of The Good Place. So there's this episode in season two, episode eight, it's called Leap to Faith. Not leap of faith, but leap to faith, which is already a little interesting nuance. And throughout the episode, there are these little references to Kierkegaard and to this notion of a leap of faith. And without getting into all the context that would be necessary to explain The Good Place, because it's convoluted and super highbrow, complex, while at the same time being very lowbrow in its, in its humor, it's a wonderful mix of those things. In this episode, Michael, who's this arch demon who has, spoiler alert, created this quote-unquote good place, which is actually in the bad place to torture people, during a series of reboots in which our four main characters have had their memories scrambled. This character named Sean, who is another demon, comes along to see what Michael's up to and reveals to the four that actually this is the bad place that they're in. It's not a big drop like it was at the end of season one, which was a surprise for us as the viewers. During this moment in which Sean and and Michael reveal, hey, you're actually in the bad place, Michael says to Eleanor that, you know, this idea that Chidi would... Teach you philosophy and ethics to try and help you become a better person is just ridiculous. And as an example, he brings up Kierkegaard in that moment. Mm-hmm. He, he says something like, you know, fear and trembling, more like stupid and boring, you know? And, <laughs> and, and uh, it's this great moment. But later, after that scene, our four characters are thinking, Michael's got to still be on their side and that actually he, he must've been putting on an act in front of Sean, who is this demon who's kind of come to see if Michael's been doing his job more or less. And so they start to think that maybe they're supposed to trust Michael and Eleanor realizes, Oh yeah, Michael mentioned Kierkegaard, but, but she can't remember his name. She's like, what's his name? Keebler Sedwick. Like she's like, she's like, you know, struggling for, for his name and, and Chidi, you know, says Kierkegaard or whatever. And she's like, yeah, what's that dude known for? Isn't it the whole leap of faith thing? And then Chidi's like, well, actually, it's better translated as a leap into faith. And and, uh, again and again, there are these moments where Eleanor is like, we're meant to trust Michael. And there's that already is an interesting uh, connection back to what we talked about last time with this idea of faith, pistis in the New Testament as better being translated in terms of trust and trusting. But again and again, there are these references to a leap of faith. And you know, Eleanor is like, we're supposed to trust Michael. It's not called a sit of doubt. She kind of <laughs> stru- struggles to think of what the opposite would be, right? So it's this wonderful little moment. But but again again and again this leap of faith is mentioned and at the very end when they're putting all these pieces together all these little clues that Michael had left for them at this kind of like public roast uh, which was again he's kind of playing this double agent thing where he's pretending to be bad but actually he's giving them clues about how to figure out how to get around this particular situation that they're they're stuck in at the very end when Eleanor is like you know I knew you mentioned. Kierkegaard and that we were supposed to, you know, trust you. And it was supposed to be this leap of faith. And then Michael's like, well, actually it's better translated as a leap into faith. And <laughs> and Chidi comes in with like a fist bump and like, you remembered. And he's like, of course I did. And all this stuff. So there's all these references to Kierkegaard. And it's super interesting because at, a, at the pop cultural level, you know, The Good Place is a great show for mixing in popular ideas about ethics and morality and philosophy. And Chidi mm-hmm. is this, this great kind of like bit of exposition to the audience about what Kant believes and about in this instance what Kierkegaard believes and it's this wonderful kind of mini education in some great thinkers oh, yeah. and, and great you know religious views and these sorts of things so I love that episode and I love the the use of Kierkegaard but I wanted to talk about that bit of the episode where twice, they mentioned that it's better translated as a leap into faith, not a leap of faith. And I'd I'd love to hear some more of your thoughts on that, because at least one of the distinctions that comes to my mind when you think about that translational difference is that a leap of faith probably suggests to most people's minds what we might call a subjective genitive which is the idea that faith does the leaping so that mm-hmm. what faith does what faith is is a kind of leap a leap towards you know a conclusion or mm-hmm. a leap a leap without evidence that's sort of a kind of idea but if it's better translated as you know they mentioned a couple of times a leap into faith mm-hmm. Faith is like a destination in that mm-hmm. way of regarding you know, the translation. Faith is not something that jumps, but faith is what somebody moves towards. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. And what's the issue there in Kierkegaard, and how does this map onto his ideas and, and his work? And how, how did it get misunderstood?
1: Yeah, I, I love that show, um, and that's one of my favorite episodes. And of course, Perfect. all of my friends when they saw that episode were texting me, like, have you seen the Kierkegaard episode? (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny, I was watching it with one of my friends one time and, and Chidi, who's awesome. And he was explaining, I think, Kant's ideas of something. And I was sitting there thinking, that's actually a really smart summary of content. (laughs) And my friend was like, it's supposed to be funny, Amber. (laughs) You're not supposed to be evaluating him. You're supposed to be laughing at him. (laughs) So it's such a great show. And that one in particular is very interesting. And I think that the part of the show that's actually the most interesting for me is when Eleanor says, it's not a sit sit of doubt. Is that Mm, right what she said? It's not a sit of doubt. Yeah. And the reason why it's, That is interesting. I think that's a really great way to contrast the opposite of what he means by a leap of faith in many respects. So sometimes we think in order to come to certain knowledge about something, right? Because that as modern sets our quest is we have this Cartesian anxiety Mm. (laughs) that I need to have certainty about what I believe. I need to be in the right. And the way that I have certainty is very much influenced by the way we do court cases and evidence in, for, in front of a jury. And the way to have certainty is to um, know something beyond a reasonable doubt. So doubt, especially since Descartes, has become a fundamental aspect of our knowing process as moderns. Hmm. So there's this idea that we start with doubt. We start with nothing. And then as we acquire concepts, axioms, ideas that we can hold beyond a reasonable doubt, then we can build up from there. And Kierkegaard makes fun of this posture a lot, this idea that you can just kind of sit in your chair and then construct a system on Mm. the basis of of doubt, doubt being your foundation. And when you do, he thinks you actually don't get anywhere because Mm. you're sitting in doubt, right? Mm. It's not a a movement. It's very stagnant. It's very scrutinized. It's very dispassioned and it's very detached. And that doesn't actually get you very far. Case in point, take any kind of normal human relationship. <laughs> you mm-hmm. don't construct a normal human relationship sitting in doubt, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least not a healthy one. It's active. It's involved. It's pursuit oriented. It's turning towards the other. It's opening up towards the other. There's all these movement types of things that we do when we're constructing relationships. And constructing relationships also involves something called trust. And it's not, they're never based on beyond a reasonable doubt certainty ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I, I think that that's a really great contrast to, to get at more of what he's speaking to uh, is this defective idea that we will somehow get into faith by building upon doubt So one way that he frames the question in um, a couple of his works by pseudonym Johannes Climacus is this question here. Can an eternal happiness be built on historical knowledge? So eternal happiness, meaning having saving faith. Can that be my, my eternal relationship with Christ? Can that be constructed on the basis of historical knowledge? Typically, you do that, you know, historians or any kind of archaeologists or scientists, you're going to bring everything down to the bare bones, start with the objective facts, and then try to construct from there, right? So there's this idea of, you know, is it possible that we can build bridges to faith, construct things that will get us into, you know, this realm of faith, right? I think that's a super relevant question because we build all kinds of bridges like that all the time. One of the ways that we build those bridges would be, and he talks about this through historical arguments, because we might go on this quest for the historical Jesus, or we might look at cold case Christianity arguments for mm. the assurance of the res or the certainty of the resurrection or that Jesus actually lived or that he traveled to these places at these times to, to verify the information that scripture gives. And what he says is, you know, that's fine to do that kind of work. There's value in history in terms of giving us a what, right? Telling us information about things that happened in the past. And it can have different degrees of reliability. You know, that's that's fine. However, when the problem with history is it can tell us to degrees the what, but it can't tell us the how. So mm. what I mean by that is it, it can tell us to various degrees a certainty, you know, that Jesus lived, that he died, that a tomb was empty, right? But it can't explain to us who he was or what his death meant or what his resurrection ushered in or the significance of any of that. That is up to divine revelation mm-hmm. in order to give us those facts. So, divine revelation is an inbreaking of something. It's a Mm -hmm. different kind of knowledge that comes. And so we can't like stack the deck with historical evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence and then expect that to kind of like tip us into faith, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. He thinks that when we try to do that, when we try to lean on evidential arguments to be able to like eventually pour us over into faith, that – we will wind up being in this process of endless deferral because we will continually stack evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence there's always going to be a new piece of evidence for and then here's another one against and then i have to counterweigh it against two more that are for, and oh shoot here's one that's against and we're going to continually do that to the point where you're kind of like you're sitting in a rocking chair and you're doing a lot of movement but you're not actually getting anywhere
0: so, Kierkegaard is saying, you know, we don't want to stack our way on over and sort of like making that bridge to faith. Mm-hmm. So, this idea of leaping into faith, what exactly is he getting? Is he saying that prospect is futile? So, we got to stop. And at some point, you jump into faith, trying to understand what the image means.
1: Okay. So, to answer that question, I think it would be helpful to set up another Kierkegaardian concept that comes from Callimachus in his work, Philosophical Fragments, where he talks about the critique of Socratic knowledge. So this is a really easy concept. It doesn't take much to to grasp it. It's it's this idea that truth is already in us. So Socrates thought that we had these souls that were swimming in the world of the forms. So we know all of truth. We've just forgotten it and we need to recollect truth. And so the Socratic teacher is the one that helps you remember the truth that you like already know. And Climacus is worried that this way of thinking traps us in the imminence of thought, right? We don't actually ever encounter anything new mm, mm. because we're just recollecting what we already know. Mm. And what's more is the teacher isn't actually anybody in particular or anybody special because mm. the teacher is simply the person who is, is simply the occasion for our remembering what it is that we already know. Mm. And so here in this work, Philosophical Fragments, Climicus sets up the difference between recollection, truth as recollection and truth as revelation. So he thinks that you can really apply a whole bunch of different theories of knowledge to this basic idea of Socratic thinking, that we have the conditions and the tools already within us to recognize knowledge or -hmm. truth. We just need the occasion to, to see it or to remember it or to affirm it. And so he launches some different critiques at this, you know, one being you don't actually encounter anything new. You don't ever actually realize what are the limits to my closed horizon of human understanding. And the more I try to reach for eternal truth using my human understanding, the more I become like King Midas, you know, who has the golden touch Hmm. and everything he touched turned to gold. And then he could never escape his kingdom of gold because everywhere he tried to go and touch something new, it would turn to gold. And so you end up being collapsed into this finite horizon of what's available to human understanding. Mm. And so what he thinks is you need an altogether new condition. You need namely the eyes of faith. And truth can't be something that you recollect and draw from within yourself. It has to be a gift from elsewhere. Mm. And it has to actually break in. It has to do the work. Like, you can't do the work. It has mm-hmm. to break in. Mm-hmm. And when it breaks in, it, it introduces something new. And so for Clemachus this is the, the paradox of the incarnation that does this, that the eternal God That the God man came and ruptured the finite human horizon and opened it up to eternity and created a new horizon for us to live under, one that's so much bigger and has so many more possibilities than the one that we lived in before. Like, for example, it's not logical, it's not possible for the dead to rise. Mm-hmm. In the close finite horizon, that's not actually a possibility that's available to us. Death is our final end, but Christ introduced a completely new possibility, right? Mm-hmm. So all of this is to say that when this happens, what is going on is not some kind of an irrational enterprise, but it's a supra-rational enterprise that faith critiques the closure of reason that governs the finite horizon by being opened up to this new horizon, right? And so as far as leaping into something is concerned, (laughs) Hmm. what that means is that instead of existing as a being in the world, you exist in the world as a being before God. Hmm. You exist in the world underneath a much broader horizon. Hmm. And that does not necessarily make sense on the terms of human understanding. In fact, it doesn't make sense, which is why Christians are aliens and sojourners, and they live in ways that are completely contrary to the intuitions of the world, like blessed are the meek. (laughs) Implicit are the peacemakers. Like that makes mm-hmm. no sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when you're living a life of faith, you actually are living, it's like you have leapt into another realm, yeah, not yeah, this otherworldly yeah. realm. Right. It's not like I'm so heavenly minded that I'm of no earthly good. Right. <laughs> like I live in this world and, but I live in a completely different horizon. And what got me to live that way was not the, Evidential knowledge, the historical knowledge, or even like the logical argumentation that I stacked the deck and built a bridge mm-hmm. out of this closed, finite world right mm-hmm. into this broader horizon that didn't work, but it was because of the the Incarnate Christ that broke through that made it possible for me to live in a different mode of being,
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that totally fits that idea of le- leaping into faith, uh, you know, seeing faith as a destination and mm-hmm describing it in terms of this kind of new horizon that we operate in now uh, and under the lordship of Christ uh, this idea that we are leaping into that that realm mm-hmm. that sphere like you're saying as opposed to faith is something that leaps you know contrary to evidence or whatever the case may be but as you're describing that I can totally see how Evidentialist apologists would not have been a fan of Kierkegaard because the oh, yeah. whole, the whole dynamic of, you know, come let us reason together and kind of assent to God through, you know, empirical evidence and rational argumentation, et cetera. I think there's no doubt that revelation is 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 key in the new testament i mean paul says mm-hmm. no one can say jesus christ except by the holy spirit in first mm-hmm, corinthians mm-hmm. so there, i mean there there are these obvious you know epistemological elements in paul and elsewhere i mean even even in matthew there's that johannine lightning bolt as it's often described where you know it says that no one can know the son unless the father reveals reveals mm-hmm. it, you know, there, yeah. there, there are these, there are these moments where, yeah, like you were describing Faith is a gift. I mean, faith, pistis, is you know it's listed among the nine fruit of the spirit in Galatians five, which mm-hmm. I think is an important observation as well. That pistis is something that is worked within us. I I, I see that fitting very well with Kierkegaard. Of course, the evidentialist might not appreciate this. I mean, wh- where's the where's the balance of what Kierkegaard says about revelation and the enterprise of doing the work of history is there a balance to be had in Kierkegaard's work i mean he's not rejecting the enterprise of history he provides us the content the what of faith
1: no it's a it's a really great question i think that and when when you were talking about faith as a gift that's exactly what he means by acquiring a new condition a new mm. condition of understanding or a new eyes to be able to see something that you couldn't otherwise see before and that that is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. In order to have faith, you have to have this new condition. You have to have eyes to see. Now, what that doesn't mean is that the evidentialist or classic, classical apologetics enterprise denies that. Actually, they really affirm that over and over again. They're They're very quick to say, look, we can give these arguments – And these arguments are meant to remove obstacles along the way to faith, but saving faith comes from a personal encounter with Christ, Mm -hmm. right? So they will say that, which I think is absolutely right. The bigger question that I think Kierkegaard poses, it's not necessarily a critique of doing history, or it's not a critique of doing rational argumentation or constructing really good arguments. I think what he offers us is the chance to ask ourselves this question of what is the best way to remove obstacles to faith for someone mm-hmm. so if stacking the deck with evidence bridge building <laughs> you know it's not going to just set us up to tip us into faith like what are the best things that we can do in order to invite people to see christ right i think that's a a really really good question that he asks The other thing that I think he does is he helps us see that knowledge is not first and foremost, this objective thing that we do. And then we have some sort of subjective feelings about it, maybe or maybe not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think he invites us to redraw our entire conception of criteria for knowledge and what it means to know something. And so I I think the idea is... Maybe asking questions about criteria that might be hanging someone up or inhibiting them from coming to faith. Like, for example, asking the question of, well, if you have to have absolute certainty before you can believe something, have you ever thought about the fact that you don't do that with anything else in your life? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: Maybe helping to free some of the Cartesian angst from people by by asking those criteria questions or those method questions, mm-hmm. and I, I think a lot of times uh, the apologetics enterprise tries to fight fire with fire, like mm-hmm. they try to say, "You're saying that you know I can't have certainty that Jesus existed. Well, watch me prove to you that Jesus right. most certainly existed, right. <laughs> right?" Right. Um. And you're like, well. Probably the better thing we should do is not to just play by that game, but Mm -hmm. ask questions about that game because that game is actually not a healthy one. Mm -hmm. It's not good for us as human beings and it's not good for us as knowers. It's not good for us as friends or anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that is, is what Kierkegaard helps us do is to not jettison either the objective or the subjective, but rethink how the two come together as we indwell an embodied reality in the world, but under the horizon of faith.
0: Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And one thing that also kind of comes to mind, given the reference to fear and trembling earlier from The Good Place, is that faith is portrayed as a crazy man on a mountain in that book. Would you try to tell us a little bit more about what that's all about and how that relates to the Binding of Isaac's story, the Akedah in Genesis 22?
1: Yeah, I I love Fear and trembling, And it's funny because it is such a problematic book. Um, because mm. so many people look at that book and say, "No, but look, Kierkegaard is saying that faith is this thing that is irrational, that is incommunicable, that uh, separates you from others, that's intensely private, and that's extremist and potentially dangerous, solipsistic, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, i I really think that even in that text, that asking different questions of that text is going to help us have a better understanding of it. And this leap into faith idea helps us do that. And even this horizons concept really helps us do that too. Because if you look at Mount Moriah and you see Abraham walking up the mountain with his son, you see him in a sense, and the text really conveys this, like leaving a worldly understanding behind him and following Mm. the voice of God. Mm -hmm. And it really does not make sense. It's a totally unknown future. He does not know what, what is happening. But you see this trust that Abraham has in God. And then in the story, though, or in the text, Silentio, the pseudonymous author, talks about the definition of faith being a double movement. The first movement he calls resignation, whereby you break from the world. You let go of the world. And he says, resolution is the first step of faith, but it's not faith, right? Faith is not this resigned person who has nothing to do with the world and just lives in this otherworldly existence. That looks really pious, but he says that's actually not faith. Faith requires a second step, which is a returning to the world. So Mm. it's giving up the world. And then it's returning to the world, Mm. but with a completely different way of being in the Mm. world. Mm. And so I love that picture because faith is not this leap into another realm. It's living in this world, but it's living a life in the kingdom, like under the horizon of the kingdom in Mm. this world. I live Mm. differently in this world Mm. because I have let go of the ultimacy of this world. I have allowed a broader horizon to critique. The closure of my finite horizon and the limits of my human understanding, the cross is it's a stumbling block, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and that God has confused the intellect of and, mm-hmm. and uh, what the world declares is folly, or what the world declares is wise is folly. And right. so, It's a way of breaking from that and of living my life in complete openness to God and to what He is doing, but not doing it in a way that's in any way detached from this world, but a way that actually allows me to love this world and live a life of faith, hope, and love here and now.
0: I really like that idea of you know faith is this crazy man on the mountain being sort of the perception from within this horizon and like you mentioned with the folly mm-hmm. idea as you were describing that i was totally thinking of what paul says about you know the cross being you know foolishness right mm-hmm. to 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 the greeks right and thinking a- about this idea that yes of course within within that horizon in which this is capital punishment yeah, it's it. It looks silly. It looks absurd, right? But within another horizon, like you're talking about, uh, we see the wisdom of God at, at work. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I love that idea. It also the way you describe that two step movement of faith. It it reminded me of discussions I, I've heard from like C.S. Lewis when he talks about the role of the imagination, where it's not an escape to another world, but rather it's an escape the present world right and so mm-hmm. there's this idea of we go to Narnia right we go to Hogwarts we go mm-hmm. to middle earth but we co- we come back right mm-hmm. and there's this mm-hmm. we bring that with us right the journey that we went on has changed us and it, it and we bring that into the present I think thinking of faith and the kind of transformation by the spirit and and how that impacts the real world in in a similar way I find that to be a really interesting and fruitful thought.
1: Yeah. So you see how it's totally different from sitting in doubt, (laughs) Right, Um, but it's, it's also not properly designated a leap of faith as we think about it. And even the idea of a leap into faith is right, but I think is right when we understand it in light of this double movement of faith, of Mm -hmm. resignation and return. It's a there and back again, and it's Mm -hmm. indwelling the world in a different mode of being, Mm -hmm. um, in a new mode of being.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I think this has been a really wonderful conversation, Amber. I think we have tread yeah. quite, a, quite a bit of ground there and back again. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, and uh, it's been interesting to hear more about Kierkegaard and, and to think through some of these popular notions about faith that have been kind of unduly attributed to him. And mm-hmm. uh, interesting to get some clarification on that. So yeah, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun to talk about this.
0: like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com.